with, within the context of families, how do you come together as a society? So those questions are sensitive and are close together. Um, so what we'll do today is, in, in this time that we have on that question about rule, um, I want to look at a debate that was going on between, I am in a Presbyterian church, so we're going to use Samuel Rutherford, uh, who himself was a good Scottish Presbyterian. And the issue that's in front of him, he lived in a time of um, civil war, and multiple wars, in fact. And the, the, the persons that I'm bringing into contact with each other are Thomas Hobbes and, and Samuel Rutherford. Now, why would I want to look at Thomas Hobbes? Um, now, I have a four-year-old. And when he, the, earlier this week, when he knew that I was reading about Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> on the doctrine, of, and I was reading about Calvin and Hobbes and Scripture, he got really excited and asked me to read out loud to him what it was. And then he got very concerned. Uh, Daddy, this is not what's in my version of Calvin and Hobbes. So, um, but, the, but the reason Hobbes is such a, fig, a seminal figure is not just because of his political philosophy, but because of the way that his understanding of the relationship of, um, the relationship of society and scripture um, one of the crises in the 16th century is a crisis of authority and the nature of the authority of the scriptures in the church. Whether you're at the, whether you're at the debate between um, Luther and Eck at Leipzig um, in the early 16th century, where the crisis is, uh, is, is it scripture alone or is it the church that oversees scripture? Which, which, which shall have predominance as an authority in the church? And so the, the crisis of the 16th and 17th century is where does the, where does the authority of the scriptures reside? Is it, does it reside in the pope or does it reside in the church? Um, and then among others, is it in the private individual or is it in the teaching office of the church? That's a debate that actually happens. William Ames uh, is, a, is an English Puritan in the Netherlands uh, in the early 17th century who is also having that discussion about what is the nature of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that's important for our understanding of, the, of this creation mandate and the nature of power and rule is because Hobbes puts forward a very radical proposition on where does the scriptures derive its authority. And his basic point is this. The scriptures derive their authority from the sovereign. Now, who likes Hobbes in the modern field? The Soviets. Soviets like Hobbes. Soviets aren't interested in the monarchy that Thomas Hobbes is interested in. That is, the devolution of power in the person of the king. They are interested in his theory about kingship as a suprapersonal entity known as the state. And so the Soviet understanding of that term in Russian, flast, power, might, and the exercise of it, and the way in which it impinges on families and societies that's where the, the Soviets were using Thomas Hobbes. That's a very interesting point. Uh, that also leads us into the discussion of, uh, well, Karl Marx. Um, he also is interested in Hobbes, um, in the way that Hobbes understood the state of nature. You see, earlier I made the comment that the, the creation of humanity puts us into a social context, that God has made us sociable. And that whenever we are not living in, in 
a state of harmony, uh, that actually represents sin. Um, if you understand the fall, it brings in alienation between husband and wife. It brings in alienation between parents and children. It brings in alienation between uh, one family and another. And so that you have a, a very delicate issue of how do neighbors and others relate in the cultural endeavor? If How do they view each other? Are you an ally or are you an enemy? And so if Christianity starts by the premise that uh, all of human, all of human life, the whole human race, traces its roots back to one family. That opens up a very interesting question about how you think about human beings who have this dignity, or does it represent as some? There's actually a debate among some evolutionary scientists who are debating whether or not the human race devolves from one source or multiple. And if it's multiple, then what you're engaging in is species conflict, writ large on geopolitical maps. So it matters how we think about the human race. And where does sociability fit in that? So we need to look at Thomas Hobbes. He casts a very long shadow in political history. Um, would it surprise you if I told you that Thomas Hobbes defines father rule in the family as predicated on force. What does that mean? It means that Hobbes has a definition of patriarchy that's built on conflict. So where is the language in our society today coming from that says patriarchy is necessarily wrong? What you have to ask is what is your definitions of this? The family as a unit. How are you thinking through uh, marriage? Is it a necessary component? Is monogamous marriage a necessary component of human society? And as we've heard a moment ago about human nature, if there's suspect human nature, there's doubt about the nature of what it means to be human, what do you think that means for any understanding of marriage or family built on a, a imago dei? And that's where we find ourselves. So Hobbes is a very interesting figure for those reasons. He gives us an understanding of the family, See, his, so among Christians, it's more common to say the state is built out of families. Hobbes would say that the family is a microcosm of the state. That's a fundamental difference in how you understand human organization. Is the state comprised of families, or is the state comprised of citizens without reference to their families? How do you think about the most basic unit of society? And that's where we get to this image. Um, this is the title page of the book Leviathan. Now, what you may not be able to recognize, this might, you might think this is chainmail of a king. It's actually not. It's, um, it's people. It's people. And the picture here that Hobbes has of the king is it's not just he is person himself, but he is the instantiation of all that the corporate body of the state represents. And so what you have here in Hobbes is a suprapersonal understanding of the state. And that is what's attractive to the totalitarian regimes today. Uh, Hobbes' understanding of human society is, is fairly described, even by people who like him, as totalitarian. Why is it totalitarian? Because 
in his view, the one who exercises rule has total control over everything. Um, that is radical. And it is deconstructive of Christian ideals and of a human society built on sociability, families, human dignity. Um, he's, he is living. And now you say, well, how did Hobbes come to these conclusions? Well, I'll give you this. Um, this might have something to do with it. So Thomas Hobbes was born in 1588. He dies in 1679. He's 91 years old. Lived a long time. But he lived through some of the most tumultuous days of British history. I'm just going to list off some of the wars that he survived. I'm not saying he served in them. It's just he lived through them in his culture. Um, in 1639-40, to 40, there was the Bishops' War that involved England, Scotland, and Ireland. Then there was the Irish Confederates' War that lasted from 1641-53. to 53. Then there was the First English Civil War um, from 1642-46. to 46. There was the Second English Civil War in 1648, the Third English War in 1650-52 to 52, between the Scots and the English. And these were just domestic wars. This is what England was involved in at home. Now let's go international. Um, there were also two Anglo-Spanish wars in this time frame from 1585 to 1604. That's one war. Then there was another from 1654 to 1660. There was a war with the French in 1627 to 29. Then there were three different wars with their Protestant friends, the Dutch, over trade um, between 1652 and 1674. Hobbes also lived and survived through the reigns of Queen Elizabeth I, King James I, Charles I, the execution of Charles I, and then the English protectorate under Cromwell, and then the Stuart restoration of King Charles II in 1660. He was a royalist through and through. And so when you say, uh, Hobbes, why do you think that all of human society is based on a standing of war? He's kind of lived it. He's seen the tumult, and he's seen the trouble, and he's seen the deconstruction of society, and he's seen people engage in looting. He's seen churches burned. He's seen all kinds of things. And so if you ask him, are you a pessimist on human nature? He goes, yes. What do you need? We need a firm, total sovereign to put an end to all of this. And so for him, his understanding of how do you gain peace in society is by every citizen yielding all of their rights to the sovereign in exchange for peace. That's his understanding of the civil society. And in that context, that means you also yield conscience. What else do you yield? Well, in theological terms, conscience and the testimony of the Holy Spirit gets to the ministry of the church, and it gets through the preaching of the word. So for Hobbes, who has final authority in the matters of conscience and the matters of the formal interpretation of the word of God, the sovereign. Can you see why a regime that prides itself on total control might like Hobbes if the, the, the reaches of his formulations reach even into the conscience and hearts of men? Um, so the question then that, that is challenged here is in how does a, how does a society exist? Um, that's these sorts of questions. What happens if the creation mandate for dominion is misapplied? 
in, in human society? What's the nature of that dominion and rule in society in the political commonwealth? Does any human being gain absolute dominion? Does any human being gain the right to reign in the conscience of the church? That's a, that's a strong question. And then what are the limits of that human dominion and rule over others? And this is precisely where the Scots Presbyterians of a former day were saying the word of God. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are our people, right? Um, if you're in the Presbyterian fold, this, this, is, this is kind of a, the rallying of fife and drum because it's that question of, the, the, it's this formal question here at the end, is the sovereign over the law or is the law over the sovereign? Is there ever a state of affairs where, where a son of Adam stands over the law that God has given? And a Christian would have to say, no. Um, the, the problem that we run into in the prior lecture is when someone is saying, there is no law, there is no, there is no law. But the other side of the problem is this, what happens if you're standing over it? Um, that's a se severe and important question. This is Hobbes, a picture of him here. This is the name of his book. He took the name of his book from a comment out of Job 41:33. Leviathan is his name for the state. And he says, the, the, the passage that he quotes out of the Vulgate in Latin is, there is no power on earth that would compare to what it has become so that it would fear anyone. The it he's referring to is the superpersonal state. This is part of what our political science classes learn. Um, having taught in uh, a graduate program that was in part funded by the State Department uh, for the study of peace and war in, Dublin, uh, in Belfast, um, this is part of the conversation. Here's one of his comments. Now, notice how this is how his, his philosophy starts with an origin story on human beings. So compare and contrast with what you've heard in other lectures this morning, other talks this morning. Notice what he, he, he argues. And because the condition of man is a condition of war, of everyone against everyone, in which case everyone is governed by his own reason, and there is nothing he can make use of, that may not be a help unto him in preserving his life against his enemies. What he's saying there is, is in a state of nature, you can take whatever you want if you have enough force. And it's not just things. He's, he includes in that specifically wives, children, property. War against war. That's the state of nature. And that's not where you want to live for Hobbes. He's not saying that's a great thing. He's not saying this is happy if we're in this position. I mean, he, you have to remember, he's living through various wars in his own context. You don't want to live in a state of war. But if you ask him, is that the default setting of human beings in the way they've been made? He would say, yes, it's a state of war. Um, every man has a right to everything, even to one another's body. And therefore, as long as this natural right of every man to everything endures, there can be no security to any man. So that raises a problem. How then do you gain peace? If, if the state of nature is the area where you have maximal rights and freedom as individual against individual, there is no authority to tell you not to do something, and that's when you have maximal rights, then how do you gain a civil society? Hobbes' answer to that question is this. 
The only way to erect such a common power as may be able to defend them from the invasion of foreigners and the injuries of one another is to confer all their power and strength upon one man or upon an assembly of man that re may reduce all their wills to one will, as if every man should say to every other man, I authorize and give up my right of governing myself to this man or to this assembly of men on this condition that you give up your right to him and authorize all his actions in like manner. And notice his, his language. This is the generation of Leviathan. And Leviathan is a metaphor for all power that is wielded, and there's nothing on earth that can stop that Leviathan. Um, or rather, to speak more reverently, and let's not refers to Leviathan, the word for state, mortal God. That's a chilling understanding of what the state is. This is part and parcel of the 16th century, 17th century context, 17th century context, 1640s, 1650s, 1660s. And then he even goes so far as to say that the mortal God to which we owe under the immortal God our peace and defense. So this is 1651, London. Now, watch what he does to Scripture with that mindset. By the books of Holy Scripture are understood those which ought to be the canon. So we commonly refer to the Scripture as the canon of Scripture. It's the rule from the Greek word canon. It's the rule of faith and life. He says, okay. But by the books of Holy Scripture are understood those which ought to be the canon. That is to say the rules of Christian life. And because all rules of life which men are in conscience bound to observe are laws, the question of the Scripture is the question of what is law throughout all Christendom, both natural and civil. For though it be not determined in scripture what laws every Christian king shall constitute in his dominions, yet it is determined what laws he shall not constitute. So in this regard, the scriptures only are, operate as a negative fence. A uh, king shouldn't implement these laws, but it doesn't specify what he should implement. Um, and he goes further. Seeing therefore I've already proved that sovereigns in their own dominions are the sole legislators. Those books only are canonical, canonical, that is, law, in every nation which are established for such by the sovereign authority. What would a Soviet do with that line? What would, a, what would, a, what would somebody who wanted to edit the scriptures according to their party's regime do with that line? This is why uh, the Christians throughout the history of the church have prized and loved the scriptures. It is our rule of faith and practice. We stand on it courageously. Right? The prayer in Acts, uh, whenever the church of Jesus Christ is threatened, that it responds by saying, uh, O Lord, continue to grant courage. Continue to grant boldness to say what is true. And so this is what happens when you recalibrate the understanding of what human dominion is. It's just one sample. Um, it is true that God is the sovereign of all sovereigns, and therefore when he speaks any subject, he ought to be obeyed, whatsoever any earthly potentate command to the contrary. But the question is not of obedience to God, but of when and what God hath said, which to subjects that have no supernatural revelation cannot be known. 
but by that natural reason which guides them for the obtaining of peace and justice to obey the authority of their several common words, that is to say, it belongs to their lawful sovereign. The Reformed in the, 16th, in the 17th and 18th centuries, whether in the Netherlands or in Scotland, rejected this. Tukor. Uh, no, Scripture. Scripture is the principle of our faith in life. And that's why we need to come to someone like this, Samuel Rutherford. Uh, he wrote a book seven years prior to Hobbes entitled Lex Rex. Now, the significance of that is Lex means law, Rex means king. And so the statement that Rutherford is saying by that title is the law is king. And in question 22, he's on this question of dominion. Who has rule? And he says, whether the power of the king as king be absolute, or is it dependent and limited by God's first mold and pattern of a king? And what he's at the heart of this question is, is, there, is every human being under God's law, or is there anyone that has, is above it? You know, one of the problems we saw in the last lecture was what happens when people are below the law. That is, they're outside the purview of it. They're not viewed as humans. Let's go the other direction. What happens when you have Leviathan who views itself as a mortal god? That raises another danger in the opposite direction to Christian culture and society and the cultural, pro and the cultural process and the survival of Christianity. Notice what Rutherford says. God hath given no absolute and unlimited power to a king above the law. It's evident by this. He who in his first institution is appointed by God by office, even when he sits on the throne to take heed to read on a written copy of God's law, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and keep all the words of this law. He is not of absolute power above the law. But, according to Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19, the king, even as king, not as private individual, even as king while he sits on the throne is to do this. Therefore, the assumption is clear. For this is the law of the king as king and not of man as man. But as he sits on the throne, he is to read on the book of the law. And, verse 20, because he is king, his heart is not to be lifted up above his brethren. So he's, Rutherford is putting forward, he's like, this is what it boils down to when you're thinking through Christian society and, and uh, even human society at a basic level. Um, that's a very important conversation. He goes further. That absolute power to tyrannize is not from God. Because if this moral power to sin were from God, it being formally wickedness, if that were true, that someone had the power to sin, and they had it absolutely, and were claiming they had it from God or divine right, he said, then that would make God a party to sin. In that claim of absolute power, it would mean that God would sign off on anything they did. And that's an important qualifier uh, for Rutherford. That's, a, that's his strongest argument in that point. And he also goes on, he says, whatever moral power is from God, that the exercise of that power and the acts thereof must be from God. So that's part of, part of the reason why Christians, in their exposition of culture and scripture, one of the things that our role is in society when we're salt and light is actually we're the ones that say, no, you don't treat people like that. This is human dignity. This is human life. This is something that is valuable. No, we don't engage in sin like this. This is not what we do. Well, what gives you the right to say that? Because our creator has said this. 
He is Lord over all. And so the part of the Christian witness, at least if you read in the history of Eastern Europe, under the reign, under the reign of the Soviets, some of the people that were first brought into, into, into prison were actually Christians and pastors because they were willing to say, this says the Lord. And so that creates a very... You can see how this could bring someone into tension. Um, Rutherford goes on in refuting this argument that was popular in the 1640s in his day. Whatever moral power is from God, the exercise of that power and the acts are, must be from God, so these acts must be morally good and just. Or if the moral power be of God as the author, so must the acts be. Now, the acts of a tyrannical power are acts of sinful injustice and oppression and cannot be from God. So Rutherford, by the way, wrote this book and immediately got in trouble for it. Right? Um, but it was a very popular book and was read, by the way, throughout Scotland and, and then throughout Ireland, uh, in the Protestant quarters of our Ireland, and also among those who came to the American colonies. You will not understand 18th century development of, of civil ideals if you don't understand Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex. Yes, you, you should read all the other questions about Locke on essays of human understanding and some of these other questions about right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you will not understand what the 18th century was reading and thinking through if you don't understand the dynamics of argument between Hobbes and Rutherford. There's a strong witness here about what the nature of human life is under a proper government. He goes on. Absolute power is a power contrary to justice, to peace, and the good of the people. It looks to no law as a rule, and so is unreasonable, and forbidden by the law of God and the civil law. So he, he's arguing from Scottish law as well as from British law, that this, or English law, that this is not a proper use of royal power. It cannot be a lawful power, and it cannot constitute a lawful judge. How can the judge be the minister of God for good to the people if he has such a power as a king given him of God to destroy and to waste the people? Uh, a king is supposed to be a, a concentration of authority and rule for the good of the people he serves. Uh, that's the way that God has set up authority. Why are children to honor their mother and father? Because they exercise the, the rule in the home that is toward their good. Why are elders in the church worthy of double honor in the New Testament? Because they exercise their rule for the good of the flock. You see, this principle of service and responsibility as the pathway of blessing in the exercise of dominion in the culture, you have to, it starts with that discussion about what is a human being. It also starts with that discussion of we have to be, the people who exercise rule have to be submitted to the law that they're enforcing. It, that's part of the debate between Hobbes and Rutherford. Um, how can the judge be the minister of God for the good of the people if he has such a power to destroy and waste? He goes on, an absolute power is contrary to nature and so unlawful, for it makes the people give away the natural power of defending their life against illegal and cruel violence and makes a man who needs to be ruled and lawed by nature above all rule and law. And one who by nature can sin against his brethren, such a one as cannot sin against any but God only, and makes him a lion and an unsocial man. 
from this point, Rutherford just unloads the truck on Nero. <laughs> he he's just goes through all of the ancient uh, tyrants. You know, Nero behaved this way. You know, like Nero got rid of, in many cases, got rid of the, the processes of justice and the courts uh, and all of these sorts of things. And so the reason I bring this up in the context of uh, the cultural mandate is because one of the things that we are worried about as Christians is not just human flourishing in the broad sense of what does it mean to honor someone's dignity as a human being, but it's also how do we live together well. And it's that answer that we had earlier that when people see the leadership in accountability, then in those moments for the church, it shows that the gospel is true. And so one of the ways that you show that the gospel is true is the way in which you respond to rule and dominion. Uh, so this is, a, this is a powerful argument and a very important one. Uh, the 19th century under Marx and Engels would take this understanding of rule and invert it as a way to critique and abolish the family. Because they would say, right, Hobbes' understanding of rule, uh, if you apply that to the father in the family, and if that's patriarchy, voila, this is oppressive. And this is where we find ourselves in some of the conversations today. There's been an in-run on the definition of what a patriarchy is uh, and whether or not there can be a possibility of benevolent rule in a family of parents, whether or not you can serve faithfully. Can you ever exercise authority and it, all, and it be good? You see, the language of this question of, of, um, of what is a human being and what, is a, what does it mean to rule in, the, in, in accordance with God's word and God's character is a fundamental one. And notice then out of this discussion, if you take this discussion of the, the, um, the image of God in man, and you take this discussion of society, which is based around, if you will, the word of God, the law of God over every person, then that rules and regulates the way in which human beings behave. Um, it, it gives us the guardrails of what it is to be in human society and human flourishing. Then the flip side of that is it also shows you how your vocations function. They cannot function contrary to law. They cannot function contrary to the, the, the human flourishing. They cannot function contrary to the dignity of human beings. Very important concepts. But this is precisely where we find ourselves in the, in the debates, isn't it? Um, when you were to, if you were to go further in this discussion, um, one of the things that happens in 20th century theology is there's been a movement, if you use the, um, if you pick up, for example, around 1912 to 1916, the work of a, of a progressive uh, minister by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch, a book called The Social Contract, or not The Social Contract, The Social Gospel. Um, and the, he talks about the, the, um, the social theology. One of the things that you find in Rauschenbusch is he has redefined sin as a structural question, not as a personal one. What does that mean on the, on the laity in the street? It means he's more concerned about systems of sin than he is about individuals and sin. He then begins to talk about we need to dismantle systemic structures of sin first before we talk about the conversion of individuals. That sets up a platform and a process of understanding the social gospel in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Um, if you're familiar with Westminster's history, you know the book um, 
by Gresham Machen, Christianity and Liberalism. And in that book, he's putting out not only here's what it means to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also putting out some of the dangers of what's going on in some of the more progressive instances of Christianity. By the time you get to the 1960s, um, due to the, uh, a lot of the oppression and issues that you can find in South America, um, there's a radical position put forward by a, um, by a prelate. Um, his name is uh, Gutierrez, and he comes out with, with a discussion about what is the nature of liberation theology. And in that, the construction of, hu of the human issue is primarily devolved in economic terms, and therefore economic terms and rule. And you see another conversation happening on all of, all of the problems of society are not filtered through the lens of what is a human being in, na in, the, in the nature of, um, with respect to the gospel, with respect to sin, with respect to these things. The primary focus is on the economic distribution of power. And that has had a massive influence in the 1960s and 70s on the development of other theologies of liberation, feminist theology, queer theology, um, black theology, um, black liberation theology, these sorts of different groups that take up a cause and filter it through a discussion of the nature of power as the primary concern for the question of theology has deeply shaped uh, the question of social questions in the United States and elsewhere. Um, so this is, a, this is a lot of different points, but it boils down to this question all the way back to Hobbes, is the nature of human existence one primarily of war? Is that the way it was in the beginning? Is that the way that we are to evaluate? And is that the way we're to solve, that we solve problems through force? Aristotle used to say that the there's two ways, um, Aristotle and also Plato. You can see this mainly in the Plato's Republic. That there's two ways to get things done in a civil society. One is through persuasion. The other is through coercion. The problem with the, that, that problem, the problem with those two is that persuasion takes a long time. <laughs> coercion, not so much. And so if you're intent on being quick, you will lose the ability to persuade. It's one of the reasons why classically in the Western world and even in, um, and even in other contexts, the, the way that laws are passed is through deliberation and persuasion and debate rather than executive fiat. Those are major discussions about how you think through power and how you think through rule. Probably not what you expected to come through whenever you said cultural mandate, creation mandate. Well, how do we think about this? This is the issue, I think, that's facing the church today when you ponder questions about missions and questions about rule and power when you go into other lands. It's important to understand how does the, how does the country you're sending missionaries to conceive of rule? How, what do they view the, the way in which the, the gospel is understood? Um, how do they understand human society? Is it, a, is it something where sociability is encouraged and discussion and, and, and persuasion, or is it something else? Um, it also helps us understand our neighbors. 
Does your, does your neighbor down the street understand the basic default setting of what the problem is in our country? Do they understand it as primarily a state of war? Or do they understand it as a state of commonness where we are human beings? And from a Christian perspective, we know that among the class of human beings, we also talk about believers and unbelievers, and that's a real difference. But we're still human beings. And so this can help us understand certain questions about how to think through matters of rule in our homes, our families, our states, and other things. Um, it's a large topic. Um, the, the, the question around po in political science on the nature of power and rule also intersects with our question earlier about anthropology. You know, when Marx says that religion is the opiate of the masses, he's viewing it like Durkheim would, that religion is just the strappings on the barrel. Part of what we have to get back to it through understanding the cultural mandate and the creation mandate well is that these are insufficient accounts and we have to give a vision of something better, something richer, something fuller, something that plays towards human, something that advances human flourishing in our vocations and our callings, something that advances our, our families in their sense of well-being, that the pathway of fathers and mothers and children is a blessedness and a good thing. These are the areas, I think, that are, that are facing our, our churches, they're facing our families, they're facing our homes, they're even facing our nation, our, our nation. How do we think about these questions of rule? As a Christian, how should I be praying through it? So, with that being said, I think I'd like to stop here and, and, and field some questions. Yes, sir? I taught history, primarily. I was in the Department of History, Anthropology, Philosophy, and Political Science. Okay, was this in a Christian institution? No. Oh. It, was at, it was at Queens yeah. University, yeah. Belfast. Well, the first thing I would point out is that um, Jesus is not a sinner. So th th that's an important qualifier on this. You know, is it possible uh, if, if Adam would have not have sinned and was constantly worried over the good of the other that he could rule in a totally benevolent way were he full sovereign over as vice regent? I think the answer is yes. But is that the state we find ourselves in now? Who is competent? Apart from Christ, who is competent to behave with absolute authority? I, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why well-run well um, churches have checks and balances. Well-run denominations have checks and balances. It's one of the things we aspire towards in our own civil arrangements, too. You know, as a Christian, I'm not, I shouldn't be afraid of accountability, right? I, I, I shouldn't fear accountability. Accountability is a good thing. Submitting myself to the brethren is a positive thing. 
So that's an important point here. Um, the other point to make is that in a sinless environment, there is no way that someone would exercise absolute rule apart from absolute service. Hobbes will talk about how the sovereign has right to everyone's goods with no justification. Any rights that, the, that are held by citizens under that sovereign are rights held against other citizens. They are not rights held against the king. He has the ability to take anything for any reason. That's how far Hobbes pushes the question of property on civil forms. The other one is, is that Hobbes would even say things like, uh, this even touches on matters of inheritance. Are there regimes in this world that want to limit your inheritance? There are some countries where it is illegal to have uh, inheritance beyond a certain point. So there's questions then about rule and property because it also touches on the common good. What is a human being? What is, your, what is the products of your labor? Who owns that? What is, who is that for? Is it for the good of the family or is it, is it grist for the mill for the state? How does this work? In Hobbes' Leviathan, the sovereign has an absolute right to all of your goods without any reason. Is that just? Uh, the Dutch reformed, the Dutch reformed, a lot of these arguments are tucked away in Latin, which I enjoy. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of the, so like what I find interesting is if you go to a theologian at the University of Leiden in the 1740s to 1780, he served as a systematics prof. His name is Bernardinus de Moor. Um, by the way, if you ever do a dissertation like I did on Bernardinus de Moor, be warned, he wrote a book called A Perpetual Commentary. That's a danger for any graduate student to have to work with. Um, but anyway, one of the things that I noticed in him about Hobbes was 70 years later, he's still debating as a theologian in these default questions about what is the nature of authority, what is the nature of scripture, what is the nature of the things. And what he zeroes in as why Hobbes is a problem for systematicians of Christian theology in the 18th century is that Hobbes says, not that the Pope is the head of the, uh, over Scripture, but the state is. And he's having none of it. He's saying that is not the prerogative of the state. So the reformed of the 18th century are very alive to this problem of the rising totalitarian regime that wants to say it has rule even over Scripture. And that's how they get into it. But it opens up that problem and critique of what is the nature of power and what are the limits of a sovereign. You saw in Rutherford a limited, you could, you could see in Rutherford, he's a monarchist too, but he's a limited constitutional monarchist. Right? He's, he's in favor of monarchy. He likes them. He thinks they're good. Um, but he also has a very active uh, parliament in Scotland that want, that's going to negotiate and debate with the king. He also knows that the nobles in Scotland are the ones that are also involved too. So there's in some way a quasi-aristocracy uh, that's functioning in, in line with this. So the,
Correct. Yes. Yeah, so it's a, it, the question of origins is very important. How you view human beings is very important. Is the most important thing that they're a human being or is the most important being question where they're from? How does a Christian think through that? In Christ, there's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. How, how, does, Chris, you know, how does a Christian think through that? Great question. Thank you. Yes, sir. I can't speak to what politicians are re actually reading. I wish some of them would start with laws. <laughs> um, but the but to answer your question more directly, what, what the way Rutherford would start would answer that, I think, would he be he would say, um, on the basis of this text, whether you're talking about sovereign rights of a super personal entity or whether you're talking about and as you put it, states' rights, a lower subsidiary sort of power. Either way, they would say that the, the, the one in authority is under the law. And, and the point he makes is part of the reason why you, that someone needs to read the law and know the law is because they need to remember that they sit under it. And it also shows us that it's as kings, and you can see this in ancient Israel, they tend to forget it because it aligns with their preferences. It aligns with their sinfulness. Well, how else are we going to repent? <laughs> but but the point here is is that the 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 law is you know we we in, in reform circles we talk about how many uses of the law. Well, that there's a there's one that it it, it leads us repentance, but the other one is it becomes the pattern of our sanctification. Right? Yes, sir. Well, in, are you talking about with Hobbes and Rutherford? Um, you know, one of the things that's going on in Scotland is that, I mean, as you can imagine, Hobbes has nothing kind to say about Presbyterians. Let's just get that one out of the way. He actually has some very pointed comments about Presbyterians. He doesn't like them because they keep putting forward limited government. <laughs> and that's con totally contrary to his understanding of rule. And the Presbyterians are saying, this is not only something that is a function of our Christianity, but it's also a function of our humanity. 
anyone that claims to have absolute rule is someone that, in theory, claims they have absolute rule even over God's law. Like, we saw Hobbes say that the king has the right to determine what the meaning of Scripture is within his domain. Well, he would say it's a living... So, this is interesting. Okay, let's, let's play with this. Okay, so... One of the arguments that happens in the 1530s on the continent about between Protestants and Roman Catholics, uh, Stanislaus Hosius wins a cardinal's hat arguing against Protestants. And one of the things he says about Scripture is that it doesn't, it's, it's, the, it's the recording of what the Holy Spirit said, but the Pope is viva voce. And that is a similar move uh, from a Protestant perspective, that's a, what the what the what what the sovereign is doing in his land is similar to the arguments that Protestants were having over the 1530s, and it, and so it's it's very interesting that to me that one of the questions here is about not just the nature of Scripture, but it's also about the nature of human government in general. You know, one of the debates between Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who at one point was the head of the Index of Prohibited Books in the 1590s. Um, William Ames is arguing with him. William Ames is a, is a Puritan, a Reformed Puritan in the Netherlands. And they're arguing over whether what's the best form of government. And Bellarmine puts forward monarchy, necessarily. And Ames challenges that and says, no, you could actually have democracy, aristocracy, and monarchy. You could. But the question is, is the nature of rule. You could, in theory, have a good monarchy. You could, in theory, have a good democracy. You could, in theory, have a good aristocracy. And you could also have terrible versions of each. Right? The question isn't necessarily the arrangement. The question is, is what do you mean by rule? What are the limits? And how do you enforce those? You know, um, I think that's a helpful comment, too. It's easy to see how perhaps we've strayed from our understanding of the dignity of the human being and the nature of life. But on the other hand, it's important for Christians to understand that the law of God rules us. And we, we, we also want to say that the word of God and the character that God has said in the, in the creation mandate is also part of the limits of what it means to be human. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why Christians get argued with so heavily and they want to deconstruct Christianity so heavily whenever you put forward the creation in because I don't want there to be limits. I want to do what I want to do. Worship and serve the creature, right? Instead of the creator who's blessed forever. Yes, sir.
Well, stumble and fall forward. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting here is the Chomsky-Foucault debate. And I don't normally, I wouldn't normally think of Foucault as a friend. Like, philosophically, theologically, there's major planks of problems in his views. He's not a Christian. And he has a very skeptical view of human nature, that there is, there is even such a thing. So there's deep divisions and divides with him. But I would say this, he is an astringent. He's not going to let an evolutionary biologist get away with this inevitable sense of progress. He's that much of a skeptic. Like, he can turn on the secular atheist, and he doesn't go, my people. He looks at him and goes, you're totally optimistic on this for no reason. So there's actually a way in which reading someone like Sartre, you know, uh, someone said, what do you do whenever you're talking with an atheist? You know, what if you meet a happy atheist? It's like, well, I want to introduce him with enough miserable atheists. You know, who are who have this very sen this strong sense that the, of the misery of what comes whenever you're an atheist. We're, we're in the happy-go-lucky. We, if we toss off God, we do whatever we want. Someone like Sartre is wrestling with, yeah, now I have no purpose. That's the kind of thing where you can read folks like this, and it actually becomes a very interesting opportunity to talk to somebody, you know, uh, not that I want to get wrapped up in French expositionalism with my neighbor, but do you have a sense of purpose? Do you feel like you are known? Do you know that there is love? You see that? Now all of a sudden I've cut through all the, the, all the philosophical, psychological evaluation. I'm now into a very real pastoral question. You see, when you get this wrong, it changes the dynamics in your family, and it changes the dynamics in your own self-worth. Yeah, that's right. You know, these other questions are policy questions. We're debating about how much money we're going to send on potholes. You know, that kind of thing. But if we, get the, if we lose our children over the questions of native identity and what it means to be valuable, what it means to be a human, what it means to have purpose, what it means to have dignity, what it means to have a calling, and what it means to have limits. Yeah. I, my, my image with my children, um, I tell them I'm not a cage, I am not a wall, I'm a guardrail, and if we're grinding, there's a cliff on the other side that I see, and we need to talk through. And when I drop them off for college, I say, so now I'm roadside assistance. <laughs> right? I can get here to help, but not as it's happening. <laughs> you know? And I think that's exactly partly where, how does the cultural mandate help us? And it's exactly that. It gives us a sense of purpose. It also gives us a sense of limitation. And delight. God created it. What's a word that we didn't spend enough time on today? It's all very Those are perhaps some helpful points. Other, yes, sir. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. That is true, and I would, I'm going to respond as a historian would which chart with church history. Um, this isn't the first time that Christians have been accused of being immoral because they're Christian, not because of something they've done that is actually immoral, but it's actually because they're Christian. Being Christian is immoral. It's offensive to our, liber- our, our understanding of our identity as citizens. It's offensive to our understanding of power. It's offensive to our understanding of these things. This is the first, second century, third century Christianity. And what did they say? They didn't say, oh, Lord, make it stop. They said, oh, Lord, give us boldness to continue to preach. You see, so there's going to be a point at which, you know, some people say, oh, are we, is this more like the Middle Ages? And it's like, no, it's actually more patristic. Christians are going to have to learn what it means to preach while being persecuted. We spend a lot of time thinking that we're going to be faithful Christians and it's going to be respectable may not. You might have that blessing. The Lord may grant you that privilege. But it may be that we have to say we have to say the truth while we're being persecuted. There that is, but that assumes that people are looking up from their phones. <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, I mean, in the sense that you, I'm not saying you don't have the witness, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is that our, our, our generation. I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that, you know, I appreciate that. I'm not trying to be flip. I'm not trying to be glib with you. But I do think that there is a, there is a very real sense in which um, we've had 100 years of people saying that my primary form of mission is through social good. Has it grown our churches? Right? In some cases, but not in all. Um, These things are good to do. Um, Well, when I'm, what, as far as the... When, what we can see, when you look at, when you look at the course of global missions in the last 100 years, 150 years, Sure, sure, but then you'd be a faithful neighbor and friend. You'd be a faithful neighbor and friend. I understand that. Uh, I just, I just don't, you know, I understand the hunt for witness stuff. Sure. Uh, but, but I don't think that it, it, that what we're faced with in our culture today, or what we're faced with as individual human beings in our day-to-day life, 
Well, the, the point in the earlier the point in the earlier discussion in the earlier lecture was about that issue of the human dignity. So that about human dignity, about the nature of the nature of the human being made in the image of God, and that's where exactly that comment about hospitality and these other things fell, right? But um, I don't know what neighborhoods you guys live in, but in mine, people come in, drive up their driveway, open the portcullis of their garage door, drive in, close it. And you might see them, well, I have a very specific ministry of context that I work in. Um, and so the point that I would say is, is that when you live, well, I live in an environment where uh, crime is real, very real, uh, in Philadelphia. And neighbors are suspicious of each other. Sometimes that's legitimate, but it's also... Um, you know, it's not. I don't think that every place is as bad, but I do think that there are very real divides in the culture, and there's also very real segmentation um, of folks. So yes, if you can, but um, what do you do with the guys who are telling you to get off my yard? <laughs> and you try, you try, and I guess I, there's a. I understand the point about yes, of course, be kind, be your neighbor, do do for them what you would have them do for you. Yes, of course. Those are part of it. That's the ministry. But it's not all the ministry. Um, you need the explicit ministry of the gospel, not just the service of, of good deeds. It might grant you a hearing, perhaps, but direct conversation with, with your neighbors as well is an important one in that too. Uh, yes, sir? Sure. Yes. And I think that is an important question, but we shouldn't place it in this division between love and hate. The reason is because both of those men would have said love and hate together. Yeah. They would not say, wow, power. They were all, both were very worried about too much power. Yes. The question is, how much power can you have under solving power's love and hate? So they were wrestling more central power, more localized power. That's very helpful. Now, to pick up the next question about uh, the progressive issues, there's a book that's been written by George Will called The Conservative Sensibility. You can see that in this past volume. But in there, he opens it up by saying, there's been a great political science debate with conservative, and that's all all of Princeton, about 100 thinkers, including Princeton. One is when James Madison was there arguing that we need to protect every right with a check and balance of the Constitution. In other words, he says every line of the Constitution is a battle between power and freedom. Then along comes a man named Woodrow Wilson, same building a little over a century later, and he says we need to be able to break the shackles of the Constitution. That's the birth of progressivism, saying we've outgrown the Constitution, we need it now. He too would not have been a uh, person that would follow Tom thinker, an evolutionist, he's beginning to say, you know, we can go a lot farther than that. Maybe we'll evolve in God. We're not there yet. And that's that's the trajectory that we're on. I just want to throw that in for our yep. 
Yeah, there's, that's, thank you, thank you, uh, Peter. That's very helpful. I mean, there's a, there's a point at which um, what I've shown you today is I don't know that anyone is packaging all of this and, and using it as a set of marching orders. You might run across people that are that clear in it. I've met, I've met some anarcho-communists and, and across uh, the, the academic table when I was in Ireland. Um, they described themselves as green Bolsheviks. Um, I, uh, yeah, they thought Sinn Féin was too slow. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is fun. I've never met a real live anarcho-communist. Um, but uh, you're, very seldom do you actually encounter this sort of, um, everyone's reading Durkheim and these. What you find it is in different fields. You'll find these impulses in different fields. And as a Christian, as you reflect on it, I think what you then begin to see is you start asking the question, what does it mean to have human dignity? What does it mean to be that faithful neighbor? What does it mean to be a faithful father? What does it mean to be a faithful spouse? What does it mean to be a faithful magistrate? The issue of not only do we have to learn to see people that are unseen because they're not viewed as worthy or don't have human dignity, but then there's also the other end. What are the limits of power and rule? And how do we think through it? And that's where a Christian understanding of culture is so helpful. If I could recommend a reading, I always do that at the end of a lecture, is I give you something else to read. It's a short, short lecture. You can find it online. It's Abraham Kuyper's inaugural lecture at the Freie Universität Amsterdam, the VUA. Um, it's, his, it's his lecture on sphere sovereignty. And it's where he invokes the, sty the statement, you know, there is no square inch of earth that's outside of the reign of Christ. It's a very helpful uh, point to make as he talks about the nature of human endeavor and all these different arts and fields. So thank you. Of course, you're recommending that we read that uh, Kuiper piece in the original Dutch language. No, it's in, it, it's in English. It's in English. Well, um, it's, the, it's the job of the historian to observe and point out issues throughout history. It's the job of the apologist to push back on it. And uh, we have an opportunity coming up uh, in about a month to, to push back on it because uh, Westminster Seminary is doing uh, a, a program down here called Faith in the Public Square. We've had it before. And I'm going to ask Pete if you want to come up and just tell us a little bit about what we can expect in a month, Faith in the Public Square, what kind of program it is, who's involved, and what it's about. Well, I want to say Todd passed his test. He's still hired. We haven't fired him after today. so. You know, he's an outstanding colleague. Thank you, sir. Pastor John, thank you for your warm welcome and the entire congregation. Uh, what I'd like to say is that uh, coming up, I believe it's on the, is it the 23rd of March? I think it's right. It's the Saturday of uh, the week before Easter, I think. We're going to be at First Presbyterian Church. Pastor Patrick has been part of the planning for that. And we are going to be meeting with our good friend Stephen Grant, who I know many of you have met, who's at the First Presbyterian Church. 
If you've enjoyed the kind of content that you've gotten from Dr. Rester today, this is a must-attend event. What is it all about? We're going to be talking about defending the faith in the public square. Uh, the two uh, folks will be coming in is Dr. Scott Oliphant. He is our uh, resident apologist. He's been teaching for many years at Westminster, published many books, a very fine scholar, and a very uh, excellent teacher. You'll enjoy hearing him teach. Uh, he'll be speaking, and I think his message, if I'm not mistaken, is, is there really only one way? That's an issue that Christians have to defend. What do we mean when we say there is a, a gospel truth and you need to come to that? How do you defend that? I'll also be bringing in uh, another one of our adjunct professors. He is a public theologian by profession. His name is Dr. Brian Matson. Uh, he is coming in from Montana, where he serves in the middle states, and he's regularly teaching in this public area. And he's going to be talking about political, uh, what's the right word? Siren songs of politics from the right and the left. Okay, how about that? The things that can lead us astray on both sides of the political chasm. So you can't go wrong. I mean, whatever side you're on, you're going to learn something, right? Uh, he is He's very, very astute very, very gifted as well. So I'm really excited to share two more of our, and guess what? I don't have to teach anymore. I got so many great colleagues. I can just sit back and enjoy them now. So I, I might be on a panel to answer a few questions, but we hope you'll come back for that. Uh, we're inviting everyone here to attend, and if you want more information, I think uh, Pastor John or Pastor Patrick can give you details on that. Just an interesting note, uh, that same uh, duo of men will be speaking the week earlier on Friday in Fort Lauderdale at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. If you happen to be in the state on that time and can't make it here or want to hear both, do that. But what's fascinating, that is part of uh, what is called the Kingdom Come Conference that Coral Ridge does. Uh, the senior pastor there, Dr. Rob Pacienza, is one of our Doctor of Ministries graduates and He's uh, putting on this conference. He's invited our two men to come in. And interestingly, he, they are bookending some guy named Tim Tebow. Have you ever heard of that guy? He's kind of a well-known fellow. So I'm not, I don't know who goes first or who goes after, but it'll be interesting to see who has each slot. But we have a part in that program. So we're trying to bless the East Coast and the West Coast of Florida, and we hope you'll spread the word. But please come at that next uh, opportunity, and we're just really grateful that uh, our Christian witness has something extraordinarily relevant to say to the big issues of the day. And here's a great opportunity. Thank you. And so um, thank you all for being here. And um, if you want a copy of the slides, we'll make that available to you. Just, uh, just fill out one of those little white cards in the rack in front of you. And I think there's some uh, offering plates back here hiding behind the orchids. Drop it in that uh, offering plate so we can get those to you. And um, and they were we've been uh, live streaming this so you can get it through our website or through Sermon Audio. You can get the uh, live stream of this if you want to go back and review anything from it or point your friends in that direction. And so I'd like to ask Father Michael if you would come up here and just dismiss us with prayer, and then. Uh, So you want me to do this extemporaneous? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
First of all, I'm going to pray for my prayer book. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I think we, um, I think we have a longing to share our faith with others. And in some ways, think we know how we could have done it in another time or in another place. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the direction of your Holy Spirit to see our context clearly and accurately and speak into it bravely and lovingly. For the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I knew you could do that. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Drive safe. God bless.